0: You're listening to episode 38 of the Combinate podcast with Dan Sfera, a.k.a. the Clinical Trials Guru. Uh, Dan is one of the co-authors of the Comprehensive Guide to Clinical Research. Uh, he's the founder of CRA and CRC Academies. Um, he is site director and founder of uh, Yuma Clinical Trials, and he is the host of the Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru podcast. Dan and I discuss clinical trials from the viewpoint of the patient and the link to primary care physicians. We talk about institutional review boards, informed consent. We talk about patient accrual, inclusion-exclusion criteria, and screen failure. We discuss the role of the sponsor and sponsor CRO and study site dynamics. And we end off by talking about roadblocks in clinical research and decentralized clinical trials. I hope you enjoy this episode with Dan. You're listening to the Combinate Podcast, a show that connects you to the most important resource in the medical device and pharma industries, its people. My name is Subhi Sadeh. I'm a bioengineer, and for the last decade, I've sought to broaden my understanding in this industry and have been amazed at the wonderful people I've met and the insights they've given me. Each week, I sit down with leaders to discuss their expertise, the lessons they learned, and continue that mission. Whether you're a student, engineer, scientist, or marketer, you're sure to pick up advice and knowledge that you can apply to make an impact. Now, on to the episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Combinate podcast. I'm your host, Subi Sude. Uh, We are graced and honored today with the presence of none other than Dan Sfera. Did I say that right? Last name? Sfera, but it's Sphera. good. It's yeah, good. good enough. Yeah. Um, now, one thing I love about Dan's background is uh, he clearly dove into clinical research uh, with both feet, as far as I can tell. And, and Dan will correct any uh, inaccuracies in the background that I give here, but uh, I, it sounds like Dan, you spent 15 years in industry before sort of uh, branching off on your own. Dan is one of the authors um, of, as far as I can tell, the best-selling book on Amazon f- for clinical trials, the comprehensive guide yes. uh, to clinical research. He's the founder and site director of Yuma Clinical Trials, uh, founder of the CRA and CRC Academies, two courses that introduce people to knowledge. Um, so that they can start or advance their career in clinical trials. Um, He's a co-founder of DSCC Sweat Equity and Investments and is the host of the uh, Clinical Trials Guru podcast, which has more than 600 episodes um, where he's discussing clinical trials in plain English. I can attest to the plainness of the English used in the podcast. Uh, It's
1: great. Um, Welcome, Dan thank you. not gonna win any pulitzer prize for having great prose. but <laughs> i feel like i'm fairly happy with the book, the outcomes it's been providing people who've been reading it so far. so thank you for the intro.
0: awesome. so so what what was i right you spent about 15 years on working in industry before jumping in and and doing your own thing?
1: no. no. <laughs> but, yeah, but that's, so that's good. that's what that's i wanted perfect. to clarify. I think that, so I think it's, uh, you know, what was underlying before we started recording, we were talking about our, our predispositions and I'm naturally a sprinter, right. And my wife's naturally a um, endurance runner. And I think I didn't even know it, but I'm naturally like entrepreneur. I just didn't know until I was thrown into that situation. So it was right after college graduated. I was pre-med. My dad just became a doctor, so throughout my entire life, he was physical therapist, and he like subsidized his income with working Jenny Craig. He's an international medical graduate, uh, and my senior year of high school, he actually got his U.S. certification, so he was able to start practicing medicine uh, my senior year in high school. So um, I went to college. I came back. He had a private practice already with other doctors. He's a psychiatrist. And I was like, Hey, dad, you know, I'm trying to get to med school. I was trying to like do it for him. I wasn't super interested in medicine, but I was like, ah, I got nothing else to do. I was very nonchalant, man. I, that's why I'm saying like, I got thrown into the situation. and I, I I'm happy because the entrepreneurship came out. Like I didn't even know I had it there. There were hints throughout childhood, but I didn't know it was there. And so he's like, well, why don't you, you know, we're doing this thing called clinical research. It's like something new. The practice is doing it. Somebody from USC came here and they're giving us studies. They had no idea what they were doing. So I just volunteered there. I thought it would help my grades and my GPA was pretty bad. I had like a 2.3. So I had really no chance to get into med school. So I thought, okay, you know, it's different enough. Like if I put clinical research on my resume for six months, I could probably get in um, and I got in and the company within a month, the company started falling apart. Like employees just walked out one day and I had to, I asked my dad, like, what's going on? He said, oh, the person who came in to run this clinic, uh, you know, she started her own site. Nobody's getting paid. She was managing the payroll. So now I have to, I don't even know what I'm doing. Like employees are just quitting. And I was unpaid intern. And it's, it's my dad who's the PI. So he's like, you want to stay here? Or just go find another job. And I told him I'll, I'll stay and see what we're going to do. I mean, I got nowhere else to go. <laughs> so I had to learn, like we had three existing studies and We had patients in the studies and this, this month that I was there, they were sending me to like get snacks for the patients or buy dry ice for the clinic. Like I wasn't actually doing anything for the study. So I learned from like day one, like how to do the research coordinator just through trial and error. And it took me about six months to get that learning curve. A lot of that inspired this, like these, I wish I had this, this is why I wrote it. If I had this, I would have read it like in a night and I would have been way further ahead than just learning everything as I go, pissing off CRAs. Um, so like it, that that started, that experience started planting seeds. And then I caught that entrepreneurship bug and it's like, I just kept doing site ownership. I've never really worked for anyone else. I've had a few stints as a contract CRA, but just part-time and that was really to subsidize the the lack of income on a few years um mainly after the great recession for one of my sites um so i do have some experience as a cra but yeah for the most part it's just been like working on my own like eating what i catch and still to this day and uh, but i'm very happy because i think i'm i'm lucky um but i was also prepared without even knowing i was like circumstance was perfect that's
0: that's uh that's really cool. So the um I'm trying to remember the the company name South South Coast Clinical Trials South Coast Clinical Trials. So that's Ooh. that's where that's where Man. um that's where you cut your teeth. Yeah. <laughs> and your dad <laughs> that- your dad was your dad was the original PI and you know so you, you guys they named it called-
1: SC yeah the, the acronym was SCCT. So it was like a play. I didn't name it, but it was a play on USC. Because a lot of the doctors, there was four of them, they came from USC, but they wanted to do private research like on, on the side because they, uh, they didn't want to be limited by the local IRB. Uh, so, you know, one of the benefits of being a smaller site, being a privately owned site is you can use central IRB, which means much faster timelines for the IRBs to approve the site's. Um, so the company was like, everything was already established. It was not run well at all. Nobody was running it. The person running it was only doing it so she can go start her own clinic. So it was complete chaos, but it was also organized enough to where I didn't have to do all that. And, uh, that's what I'm saying. It was like, I like perfect situation, man, but I could have also said no. And I just, I figured why not, you know, I was young enough and, I didn't really have any expenses or anything so I did it. I don't know if it was something I would do later. Like that's the problem. If you get established too late, like if you just get used to working for someone else, doing something like this seems so foreign. But to me, I had no base, you know, to to judge that off of. So it was easy. That that's why I say a lot of it's just good good fortune, good I situation. guess. Yeah. Yeah, I think about that a lot. So you
0: you talk in your um, podcast about industry technology still sort of being ahead of the basics of clinical trials being set. I think the analogy you used was like learning mm-hmm. to slam dunk before dribbling or free throws. Yeah. Can you talk, can you talk about like how you've seen clinical trials is an, in, I mean, the way you described it a little bit as, as you
1: were starting out, but um, if you could talk about that. Pharma, pharma needs tech more than sites need tech. And I know that for a fact, and what pharma is doing like this technology that's supposed to make everything easier for patients, right? The whole idea is patient centricity. And I think, much like a lot of things pharma does, um, it's the, the idealistic uh, core of what they're trying to implement often cloaks the real agenda. And in this case, the real agenda is just squeezing more juice out of the orange. So what I mean by that is patient centricity, nobody can argue like we want to make trials so that it's inclusive of all patients. It's more convenient for patients I get all of that, okay? The problem is you've got these studies now. I just got an email today. Let me pull this up. I from my new site here, Yuma Clinical Trials, we've been doing this for a month. I'm going to try to pull this up without giving away the sponsor because the sponsor in this case is actually really cool. So, there's an the email here. It said missing diary entry. I just got to show real quick. Missing diary entry. I've been getting this every day for two patients. If those patients don't Fill out their diary. They daily diaries. They get a if they don't fill out their daily diaries, which I feel is excessive. Honestly, I have to have a talk with them, and then if they continue to not fill them out, I got to take them out of the study. To me, that's not patient centric. Pa- like this is technology working against a patient. The, the drug actually working for these patients. In the study, but they're going to get kicked out of the study if they don't do their diary. And these are people like these are elderly people. Like when they get a text, my mom, when she gets a text or something and she has to click on a link, game over, man, you gotta, <laughs> that's like a two hour thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not even these people's fault. And are so there... this is like one example of like pharma. Hey, we need that data. We need that data. Patient centricity It's great. Well, it's not so great because when I started research, we gave patients paper diaries when they came into the office. And when they went home, they didn't do anything to me. That's much more convenient to the patient than having this go on. That's just it, one example. I mean,
0: are there, are there alternatives? Can you call them to, mm-hmm. to get a um,
1: update? Mm-hmm. I mean, no, nope, nope. There's no alternative other than going to their house. And even then that the drug company never tell you to do that either, but like, that really is the only alternative. Like I send my coordinator to the patient's house every night because the diaries open between six to midnight and I have them do it with them. I mean, that's, and that's pretty intrusive. That's not patient centric in my opinion. So uh, I guess I, I want to jump into your book in a sec, but
0: can you, cause your, your, um, your book, I think is, I don't want to say it's focused on site ownership, but one of the, um, I think the largest chapter, the one before monitoring, I forget what chapter it was. I think it was the longest one was describing all of the elements that you would need in mm-hmm. place to start a site basically. But I, I kind of wanted to flip the mirror a little bit and maybe talk about what is the typical day look like for a patient, a study
1: subject. Oh, from okay. their well, point of view. I mean, it's supposed to be fairly simple if not for these EPROs. So the typical day, the patient doesn't come e- into the EPRO office. EPRO is? Uh, Electronic patient reported outcomes, right? This is what's supposed to make life easier for the patients. (laughs) And in actuality, it's a threat that they will be dropped from the trial. I mean, this is nobody talks about this. Um, and even sites won't talk about it in fear of losing future study opportunities, but everybody knows this is like a huge issue in the industry. Um, So yeah, typical day for a patient is they don't come to the office. Like they just, they go about their day. They, they take their IP as per protocol. Usually it's once a day. Um, From my study, it's actually three times a day uh, for 30 days, morning, afternoon, evening. And nowadays they're supposed to do this diary. Uh, Sometimes they get a notification on their phone to do it. Other times they're supposed to remember to do it somehow uh, and everything, the burden really falls on the site to make sure they're doing. Um, so yeah, like typical day for a patient is they don't come in the office. And if well, it wasn't for these E pros life would be great. I think <laughs> I'll, I'll
0: ask the question a different way. So what is a clinical trial look like from the point of view of a patient? So, um, mm. you, t- you talk about in your book, how, You know, in many cases, PIs are also primary care physicians and, you know, they're, they're aware of, you know, people's conditions and they can, um, you know, help, help them get, you know, how, how does a patient get into the clinical trial? What does it look like when they're signing up inclusion, exclusion criteria and the questionnaires and so, and, and, you know, what do they, what do they call it? Screen failure, I think is what it's called if they don't meet and then that that kind of process. So
1: a lot of screen failures these days.
0: I come into the office and, you know, m- my doctor notices something funky, let's say he's a PI, let's say he's not what what happens next.
1: Perfect, yeah. So, let's say there's a private practice, a the providers there seeing patients. I'm integrated within their office. I have like my own office there. And I've educated the providers on the studies we have. So I say, "Hey, you know what? If you guys see anyone that meets these basic criteria. I don't give them all of it, just the basics. Um, send them my way. And so let's say they see the patient. Let's say it's a eczema study. Patient complains of eczema. Clinician says, you know what? Like, seems like it hasn't been working what we've been giving you, or maybe it has, um, or maybe it's new. We actually have an alternative for you if you're interested. We're doing clinical research here. and They usually have like a Basic ten minute conversation. Like everything's voluntary. You can you can withdraw at any time. If you want more details, this guy named Dan and his staff are gonna walk you through the informed consent. And so typically they get referred to us, maybe same day, maybe same minute. Somebody's there in, uh, from my company at the office. If it's not myself, it's one of my staff, and we'll pre-screen them. Uh, and the and good so thing you're, is you're co-located with with the PI. Yeah, yeah. We're we're embedded in their offices. So right now from my new startup, we started it last year, July 2021. I have an internal medicine PI with and they have 12 providers working with them in the office. It's a big place. And then across the street, I have a dermatologist and it's kind of a similar setup, but it's obviously way more specialized because it's just DERM. Uh so it's like everything at the internal medicine office happens at a bigger scale than at the Derm, but it's basically the same, same model. That's so uh, interesting. Yeah. And I, I really think this is the best way to get patients because one of the biggest issues in the industry is lack of accrual and then lack of retention. And you have all these sites, whether they're standalone sites, they're not embedded into doctor's offices. They, they have to have a PI to do the studies, but a lot of times these PIs, They either don't have a private practice, so they're not practicing. They're just, they have a license or they work for a university and the patients literally get lost in the referral funnel because the further you are removed from the source where you're doing the study, the more chances you have for the, somebody to drop the ball and the patient, it's not as immediate as them walking the patient over to my office and say, Hey, here, if you're interested in the study, here's Dan. I mean it's literally right there. Um, so that's kind of how it works, like from the pre-screening side. And once they're in, we take over. They they continue to see their doctor for their regular appointments. We don't interfere with that. Um, but they'll come a lot more frequently for us now, too. So we really get to know them well. Got it. So so um they 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 have the discussion
0: with their physician who also happens to be your PI, and he he says he or she says, go visit um, the, the Yuma clinical trials office that's across the hall.
1: Basically, they don't even say that. They just say, we, we're doing the research here. Here's this, here's this guy named Dan and his staff. And they all they do is research with us. So that's all they do. And then we continue to be your care providers, but we can do research on top of. Understood. And actually, I have a cool story, man. Just last week. We screen, this exact process I just explained happened. It happens every day. Last week, a patient came in. They were referred to us. Um, She's not compliant. You know, she's obese. She's not compliant with diet and all that. But she also had um, osteoarthritis uh, of the knee, which we have a study for. And she was referred. We had her come in. We did the whole thing, you know, pre-screening. Then we scheduled a screening visit for her. Turns out, all right, she's been seeing that provider for 10 years never paid attention to weight loss they told her and it just in one year out the other she's not going to do it so we drew her labs i told her like as we're drawing the labs i told her i said i've never seen um tubes like this like your most patients when i when we draw their blood and and we center feed the serum is more is more than the than the lipid and in her case, it was inverse, like the, it was like mostly lipid and a little bit of serum. And I was like, this is strange. I don't know if we drew it wrong or we didn't get enough sample, but we're going to ship it off to the lab. And a day later, because they're fast, the labs are quick here, we get the results back super high, elevated liver enzymes. And it turns out they were not drawing that panel for her in the primary care right? They were just doing like the basics. For some reason they didn't do liver. Turns out it looks like she has fatty liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is luckily for her reversible. So now she's obviously she's a screen fail. She can't do the study, but at least according to her doctor, they said they've never seen her more concerned about losing weight now than, than now. So that's a screen failure, but clinical research showed her something about her condition. So we're hopefully it makes the outcomes that a decade of primary care couldn't do in a week, in a Interesting.
0: week. Interesting. Um, so in in the case that um, that didn't happen, um, you know, let's say, let's say normal business as usual, um, you, you, they would, they would come in, you would draw their blood immediately or what's the, what does that, what does the process look like?
1: Yeah. So they come in we go through the screening, you know, there's a screening visit three to four hours. Yeah. We really get to know the patients. Well, I mean, we'll buy them lunch. We'll like, we get to know our patients. I I hired a CNA. She's on her week six with us and she comes from a world where it's high volume. Like she's lucky to remember like a face with a name. They just see like 50 patients a day from her previous job. And I told her during the interview, I said, well, it's totally different. You're going to see one patient a day, maybe two, if we get really busy." but you're really going to get to know these patients. And yeah, that's exactly what it is. Like when a patient gets randomized, you get to know them very well. Like you get to know their birthday, their special, special occasions they have going on in their life when they go travel and you, you build a relationship with the patient. So yeah, they're there with you like three to four hours. That's typical Um, or is that, uh, that's for you only. Uh, It's typical in research. Yeah. Three to four hours, like most studies, the average study visit, I think is two hours, but there's some visits, usually screening and randomization visits that are three to four hours for most trials. And so you really get to know these patients well. And it, it really sucks when the sponsor tells you, like, if they're not compliant with their diaries, you got to drop them. Like a lot of times these people are not very tech savvy and having them do all these things on their phone. Like they it's not great user experience. Let me tell you. There's not designers from Apple working on these ePros. Yeah, we're we're uh, we have my
0: daughter in um, Arabic classes. We just signed her up because you know the summer just started. She's gonna turn four, but um, you know my my wife uh used used to work in usability. Like that's her background. She did it for years. Anyways, the the point is, she gets so bent out of shape when she uses uh like a website or an application that has poor usability. And and she wrote up basically this report for them saying, guys, this is unacceptable. Um, and so have I ever join I, a study, man,
1: with EPRO, <laughs> uh, she'll
0: have a field day. Okay. So, um, so, so they, they go through their screening visit, uh, which is, um, in part of it is, you know, you're, you're interviewing them, understanding their history, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you talk about, um, the, the medical history being really important so that you, you dive deep into that. Yep. And from there, you're looking at the protocol and comparing against the inclusion exclusion criteria, Um, and from there you make a decision of whether they may or may not be included. And then can, can I, I, one thing that wasn't clear to me was the difference between being screened initially and then, and then being randomized, because it sounds like there's a second pass that they go through before that they're randomized. And that was, I I probably skipped it, but, um, or, or, or it went over my head, but can you explain
1: that? Sure. Yeah. So the screening visits done typically in one day, although you could probably break it up into a few different visits. You typically have a week to four weeks to go from screening to randomization. So you give time for the lab results to come in. Sometimes you have to redraw the labs because they're inconclusive. Um, ECG results. Usually there's a central reader. So somebody Why is, ben...
0: why is ECG so important in comparison to any other diagnostic tool?
1: Because They're looking at the cardio uh, safety of all of these drugs, right? And that's like one of the things they look at it, 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 mainly because it's relatively easy to get that data. I mean, they just send the site an ECG machine. I've never had a study. Oh, I have had one study actually where there's no ECG, which is really strange. Like in my entire 17 years of doing this, I think it's only been one study where we don't check their ECG. And I I thought I was doing something wrong when we first got that study, I was like, Hey, I think I screwed up. Like I forgot the ECG. And said, no, no, there's no ECG for this one. Um, so yeah, they're getting cardio. Data. It, it's probably one of the easiest data sets to get is the ECG, but they usually have a central central reader. Um, I guess what you asked is interesting because they're tr- the drug companies. are really trying to squeeze as much juice as they can out of these trials. So There's a whole argument here about real world patient versus a patient that that's like good for clinical research. And these days, the trials seem to be more exclusive, like they're really looking for needle and haystack patients. Every study I've had so far um, these last two years, the screen fail rate has been 80 percent or higher. So eight out of 10 patients I screen will never make it to my study for various reasons reasons. Usually it's because that's not how those patients are in the real world. And we're screening real world patients. The perfect example is the psoriasis study I have. They want moderate to severe psoriasis, but they want everything else to be normal. And, you know, after going through five screen failures in a row, I talked to my PI about this. I'm like, man, every site is having the same issue. There's like, this is like an 85% screen fail rate. Why do you think like what's going on? He said, well, you can't have somebody be moderate to severe on the outside and be normal on the inside. Like if you have inflammation on the outside, you're going to have severe inflammation on the inside too. And so usually labs or ECGs, or in that case, it was a respiratory test that failed most of the patients because those things go hand in hand. But in research, they try to isolate like the issue from everything else because they want to like eliminate sicker people. uh, So they don't have data, that kind of conflicts with the the effects of their drug, so you, it's like needle on the haystack for a lot of the stuff, which really sucks. And okay, so, for an so, industry that talks so much about inclusivity, um, I mean, I, I just find that ironic. I, I hear
0: I hear what you're saying. So um, and I have no background in clinical research, but when when you're when you're contracting out a service, say a site or a CRO, aren't you looking for them to give you input on the the protocol and inclusion exclusion criteria? Or is that typically is it just um, given to you?
1: They'll give you this like so they'll give you when a, when a sponsor or CRO approaches you for a study, they'll say, hey, here's our synopsis. Um, here's the IE criteria, uh, and as a site, like if you're in this business, I mean, it's, you know, we complain about it, but every study is like, it used to be a little easier to get patients in. Now it's like rare to find a study where it's relatively easy to get patients in. You're going to have to like do some digging through the database to find just the right fit, like the Goldilocks zone for these patients. And it's, they're usually the outliers. They're not, they're not indicative of like the typical patient for that condition. And I get it from a sponsor's perspective. They want ROI and they're hiring sites to find these patients. So I get it. And then ePro is just another example of that. Like they just want more ROI for the money they're putting into it. They want more data. Um, okay.
0: So I guess going back to randomization. So the they do their screen visit, uh, screening visit, and then they get their labs and they do their ECG. And then what? You said one to four weeks. Uh,
1: so so screening. Yeah. So screening. So let's say everything comes back. Usually there's like another assessment. Like if it's for like um, whatever indication it is, there's usually the gold standard assessments for that indication. So they go through those tests too. If all those results come back and it's within the criteria, we schedule a randomization visit the day that they are supposed to get randomly assigned to one of the treatment arms, which could be placebo, it could be comparator drug, or it could be the investigational product, usually double blind. So we don't know what they're getting assigned to and neither does the patient. A system will generate the IP number for us and we have all the IPs in our room. So we just go get the number that the system spit out. We don't know what it is, but we're giving them the, we know one of two or three possibilities that it's gonna be, but we don't know. So we go through all that again at the randomization visit inclusion exclusion criteria. We draw the labs again, we do the assessments again, just to confirm that the results obtained at screening are the same or within the same range as what they are randomization. And then when, once all that's done, we hit a button in the IRT and uh, it will generate the IP number. So now they are officially enrolled in the study, uh, so, also called randomized. And now they're going to stay in the study as long as they can, um, as long as they want to, as long as the sponsor wants to keep them. Uh, or as long as the PI wants to keep them, one of those we Understood.
0: And so, I guess in terms of controlling the investigational product, you know, you you as a lab who is um, holding the inventory of placebo comparator or the the actual investigational product, how does how does that sort of inventory process go? Is is each sort of package of um, each, each mm. say one one patient's portion of drug placebo comparator that's labeled as one, two, three, let's say you have, let's say you have 30 patients. Mm. Um, are they, do you get 10 of each? And then you uh, you just number them one through thirty, or I mean, how does how does that process no. work? Because sometimes I guess yes. I'm wondering, I'm wondering from a um, ra- randomization point of view and, and the double blinding bit, where you have no idea what you're giving them as
1: a, a study. Yeah. set,
0: You know, how does that work?
1: Sometimes it is streamlined, <clears throat> so when you randomize them, it will give you the IP for the all of their visits. But usually, it's not, and the reason why it's not is because. They don't know when the patient's gonna withdraw, and so they want to be able to reuse that IP. They don't want to give in them case two the years patient worth of <laughs> exactly exactly right because they know that most patients you know retention's kind of and that's another ta- that's another podcast topic on its own. But patient retention, you know, they they know that most patients end up withdrawing before the study's over. Completion rates to have like above fifty percent is rare. I think for a lot of sites. Um, just cause these studies are so intensive for the, the patients. Like, so yes. So the IP it's all there. We separate them by study, but it, they're all there. All the kits are there with numbers and every visit you go to the system, it's called the IRT and you generate the next IP number. And then it tells you which one to go get. So mm-hmm. You you won't know ahead of time like for visit one for visit three four five six seven eight nine ten you don't know the IP number for every one of those visits you just know it for that visit. Um, I'm
0: just I'm asking these questions from a, like a material accountability point of view because I'm fascinated by yeah, your uh, process. Is, guy. is it is it is it imp- is it impossible to have a mix up and give a patient you know placebo yes. instead of it's impossible. Yes. No, no, it's not impossible. No, it's possible, but is <laughs> I it, thought it, you said possible. Yes. Yeah. But is it, I mean, how, how possible is it? Like, are the systems really good?
1: No. So surprisingly, very possible. And this is where you need important staff training. So I'm going to give you like two examples, one from my own site, which just happened last week, which is, it's not a big deal. Um, and then one from when I was actually monitoring a few years ago that I thought was a huge deal. All right. So last week I was gone, my brand new coordinator who I trained for about four weeks prior to me taking a week off. I prepared, I said, you're going to be alone for this visit. This is, we've gone through what you're going to do. This is what you do. There's a, there's a, there's a period within screening before you randomize it's called run in for this particular study run in period now, I don't I didn't bring it up earlier because I didn't want to confuse people, but there's a run in period. We know it's placebo. The patient doesn't know it's placebo during this period, right? So what we're doing is just training the patient on how to dose properly. Mm. So that's the purpose of this run in period is to train the patient, how to take it every morning and every evening and how to record their data in the diary. Got it. So we so know, know it's placebo.
0: You- So that once, once you actually start giving them, um, investigational product, you're actually able to judge efficacy instead of, you know, their inability to actually deliver whatever.
1: So this is a 10 day run in period before they're even randomized. They're given this run in. So all the run in is just water, right? Like just placebo. So the coordinator, she's brand new, but she learned from this. She, the system assigned the run in, but. There's like a million things happening when she's by herself and she just grabbed another run-in kit, not the right number. At least it was another run-in kit though. So that's a deviation. It's, it's a, it's something that actually today I have to go retrain them on what went wrong and how to not do that again. But it wasn't a serious thing because it's open label, it's, it's placebo. So it's not like a huge deal. Got it. Basically, she
0: took she took a run in package one instead of run in package two.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If that actually happened on a randomization, though, it'd be a huge deal because we don't know which one we're giving the patient at that point. Right. It could be that we totally screwed up their their um, the study for them. That would have been a huge deal. So in a way, I'm happy it happened because now she understands, Okay, now I really have to pay attention, like which kit I need to give to the patient. So today I have to go retrain the staff on why that occurred, how not to do that again. Now, when I was monitoring, all right, (laughs) this is bad, man, bad. There was a stem cell study. You're supposed to, at randomization for, for this study, you do a lipo, you ship the adipose tissue to the drug company, the drug company then uses that stem cell to send you the IP for that patient. Right. So, um, Oh, it's, they, it's like
0: precision medicine.
1: Yeah. interesting. Yeah. They used another patient's stem cell basically on another patient on accident, which could have killed the patient. So that's an example. I'll give you two examples, right. Where this randomization thing, one is not really an issue, just like a teachable moment. The other one's like, Whoa, like you could have killed somebody.
0: But so, okay. Yeah, I, I got it. But I think the, the second one is, I feel like probably so, um, unique given that it's precision medicine that it's, I'm, I'm asking like, if it's standard, right. You get, you get a bunch of packages, right. You don't know which one is or isn't, um, investigational product, which isn't placebo, you know, is it, is it common for a normal, normal study where you're the one managing the inventory and they're not being shipped like the, that precision example for there to be a mix up? Cause I feel like, you know, like you said, that would be a, it would be a, um, a major deviation, right?
1: So both studies use placebo, both examples. Yeah. Um, the, it's just, everybody got the lipo. Mm. And then what the drug company did with it was on them. They were the only ones who knew if they were shipping back placebo Placebo or stem cell or the actual patient stem cells, but you are not to give another patient someone Someone else's stem cells. I mean, that's like, and luckily nothing happened. So maybe they got placebo, but that's that to me, like we actually halted enrollment uh, at that site until they, the sponsor felt they were adequately retrained. Yeah. Serious stuff. So that's, your question, like two different examples, on both extremes of uh, what could happen. Got it. So I want to get. I want to go into the the different um, phases of
0: clinical trials. One, two, mm-hmm. three, and four. Can you just go through them uh, high level?
1: Yeah. So one is like healthy volunteer, and you and you want... guys
0: do all want all of them at your site.
1: We you don't said, do. You said a new site. Yeah. I think
0: should start with four because it's easiest to get,
1: and then if, yeah, if you work can. your way backwards. Yeah. Work your way backwards. Generally better. Um, it, well, not generally it is easier because phase four is like real world patients. So there's almost no exclusion criteria, right? Mm -hmm. Those are like real world patients. They just want data, like additional data, quality of life, data, economic benefits, data, uh, and of course, additional safety and efficacy as they come phase three, it's a little less inclusive, but for the most part, the IE criteria is not that strict. They just want longer term safety and efficacy data. Phase two is a little tougher. It's the first time it's done on the target population. So they kind of want the outliers for those indications, like generally moderate, moderate to severe for that particular therapeutic condition, but perfectly healthy for everything else, which is rare because a, a lot of these things go hand in hand. Um It's like, and then it's
0: like the psoriasis example you gave.
1: It's exactly right. I mean, everything's connected. Like the more you start studying medicine and different specialties, the more you realize it's just, everything's overlap. We're just trained to diagnose and specialize. But at the end of the day, every specialist is just treating a different aspect of that person's overall health. So you're Um, saying
0: you're saying in in phase two, the, the, patient population is moderate to severe of that condition, but
1: as healthy as possible. Otherwise. Yep. Interesting. Okay. Which is why it's tough to get those kind of patients because they don't really exist. (laughs) I mean, you need like a big database to be able to find those needles in the haystacks. Um, And then phase one is healthy volunteers. So they want maximum tolerated dose. Um, They, they start raising the IP until the dose until they start getting some kind of adverse reactions and then they quickly take them off. Uh, so you want like extremely healthy young people. There's really no benefit to the patient for doing a phase one other than the money that they get. Okay. Um, so,
0: so let's, let's dive into that as a, as a patient, what is the, there's obvious incentive for um, CROs, sites and
1: um, sponsors, but what is the uh, incentive for the patient? It's just cash. I've been at these sites. I've never, uh, I've never done phase one healthy volunteer as a site owner. I've never. They're very lucrative, but it's very competitive to get in that world because phase mm-hmm. one only requires like twenty patients for the whole study. Phase two, maybe three hundred. Phase three, maybe five thousand. So now the sponsors start considering like multiple sites, but for phase one, they only really need one site. So it's really tough unless you have like connections with the drug companies, you're not going to really get a phase one and you have to make a lot of investments to get a phase one clinic. So I've never done it for, from, for those purposes. There's plenty of people that want to volunteer. It's usually college kids. And I've, I've monitored in these and I've audited in these phase one clinics. And it's literally people that need money that do it. I mean, there's maybe one out of a thousand do it because they're like, they're altruistic, but that's typically not the patient doing those kind of studies. It's college kids looking, you know, to do a four week overnight stay, uh, to make some cash. Occasionally you'll have a phase one where it's on the target population. Uh, but that's different. Most of the phase ones are unhealthy volunteers. I think you said in your book, that's oncology, typically oncology and psych typically. Yeah. And I have done phase one psych studies, but those are not the phase one I'm talking about here. Understood. Okay. And and then obviously as
0: you get to phase two, three, uh, and four, the other incentive is, is they may get a treatment
1: that helps them. They get treatment. I've had it in my new site here, I've been doing this for about a year. I don't have, the patients are happy they're getting paid, but that's not never been for none of them so far the reason why they do it. Um, matter of fact, two of them, after their first visit, I gave them a hundred bucks. They're a little like thrown off. Like, you know, it's almost works like against them. Like, well, why are you paying me? Like maybe now I need to start thinking like why I'm doing this. So it's not really about the money at these at at um, phase two and three. It's usually they're looking for alternative treatments to their condition. Interesting. Okay. Um, do you have uh, experience with... Device
0: clinical trials,
1: like de novo, um, a little, uh, not as much as others who specialize only in that. But yeah, we've done device studies in the past. Are they
0: are they handled any differently? No, I imagine I imagine there's no there's no placebo
1: device. There's no placebo device. So the last one I did, it's probably something like you you'd be interested in. It was an asthma. Yeah. And they were testing an inhaler. Um, so the patients were guaranteed uh, two comparator drugs. There, there was no placebo. Mm. And they were testing like the actual inhaler. Um, so those are easy studies for sites to do. There's no, I mean, you, you can still make a mistake. You can give them the wrong uh, IP, even though it's open label. You can still make a mistake and give them the wrong one. But it's, it's much less likely for that to occur. And we're just checking like the metered sprays. We were just checking for compliance, like how many metered sprays they were supposed to do versus how many they actually did stuff like that. Those,
0: those were easy, easier trials. To with. Um, I guess going back to the book. So, the main the main players, right there there are some others that you mentioned, but the main players in a clinical study outside of the, the, the study subjects which we just spent some time talking about is the sponsor, CRO and the clinical site. Can you talk about the relationship between them and then mm. you know the, the, the next step just so contextualize it? You also talk in your book about how sponsors may be able to run their own studies And, and, and just basically either, uh, you know, have their own study sites or contract out study sites, but basically cut out the middleman. And so just, you know, explain all of that.
1: Yeah, that's a lot. So CROs, I would say 80% of studies have a CRO. It's a middle entity, CRO contract research organization. And they're the ones who specialize in finding sites, training sites, um, Managing complex protocols, dealing with regulatory agencies, all that stuff that like is not necessarily the core competency of most sponsors. Right. Right. Now, all that stuff I just mentioned, sponsors can do. Like the FDA never said you have to have a CRO. It just became economies of scale for them to do that. Mm. But with a 2016 GCP revision, FDA basically said to the sponsors. We don't care if you're using a CRO or not, but we hold you accountable for the conduct of the study. Because prior to that revision, sponsors would get audited by FDA. Hey, what happened here? These sites didn't do anything like you, were, you, you had them doing the protocol. They blamed it on the CRO. So FDA said, enough of this. We're revising this. It's on you. So what we've seen is more, not a lot more, but we have seen more sponsors take a more involved role, sometimes just outright, just doing it on their own. And in my experiences as a site, like the best studies to actually work with are the ones where the sponsor is the CRA, right? Like they're the ones dealing with you. Um, CROs tend to be so rigid. They're very um, like, because that's all they do, they don't necessarily give you leeway as a site whereas sponsors there they get to see the bigger picture a little bit because it's their study, so they know what outcomes they want and as long as it doesn't affect those outcomes they generally don't have a problem with the sites doing it slightly different way uh, so there's there's less clash between the sites and the, the CRA when it's a sponsor involved For the most part, there are some CROs and the CROs are so big now, like they all have different teams. So even within a CRO, the teams maybe behave differently. Um, But yes, sponsors can do everything a CRO does, but they still tend to outsource most of it to CROs. Mm. And so I guess uh, that was a a really good explanation.
0: Um, So... I guess move, moving into IRB, we, we touched on it a little bit. Um, you talk about the, the Belmont report and that one of the outcomes was the outrage around the Tuskegee um, Institute and then IRBs came out. And so um, can you just describe what an IRB is and then uh, central versus local? You talked yeah. about it a little bit earlier with the with the USC thing, but
1: yeah. So IRBs is just the ethics committee. They're supposed to make sure the protocol, and they're supposed to be independent of every all those stakeholders. And interestingly enough, they're getting more and more involved in site management, site ownership, which that's another you know podcast. Like we can spend two hours on that. Nobody's talking about that, but why are these ethics committees allowed to? own sites. Another topic for maybe for someone else, but no one's talking about this. Uh, so think, there,
0: I think that there's, um, there, there's a, there's a, so what was really interesting that I found in your book, by the way, and mm-hmm. I'm like, uh, I, I go down rabbit holes. And so I found, <laughs> well, I, that's a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, so you, you list out the regulations and I didn't know that there were, um, you know, particular parts of the CFR related to um, IRBs and financial disclosures and um, inf- informed consent, which we, which we, I, I really want to talk to you about. Um, and you know, I just went down uh, the 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 you know Google rabbit hole. But isn't don't they have to? Isn't it that they can't? I thought one of the elements of an IRB is that they can't be. They can't have a financial incentive around the study that they're, um, yeah, you know, participating as an ethics
1: board around, right? I I thought so too, um, and I, apparently the way they're currently doing it, because like I said, there's some IRBs that actually own sites. I think if they justify that it's kept separate, it's still okay to do. Mm. Um, I would love to interview someone from an IRB on that. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> yeah.
0: So then, go, going back to the to the role of
1: the the, the IRB. Um,
0: what role do they play in the
1: clinical study? They're so approving the protocol. Approve the protocol. Make sure there's no undue, unnecessary harm or risk to patients. Um, so first of all, that the protocol has to be considered ethical by the IRB, and for the most part, they do a good job with that stuff. There was one outlier case. Uh, I think I mentioned this in the audiobook. Um, 2005, actually, this big IRB they were called coast IRB I hope I'm getting the right one they're not around anymore so it doesn't matter but coast IRB you know they these IRBs are so big now so powerful like and when they make things easy for the sponsors they just keep winning business so the FDA did a sting operation where they hired coast IRB and they sent them like these fake studies that they didn't think should be approved And the IRB just kept approving everything just to win the bids and the FDA shut them down, basically. So uh, they're supposed to have a board that decides which studies, which protocols are okay to approve and which ones need to be amended for a variety of reasons. Uh, They're also supposed to uh, check the wording for the informed consent. And they're in charge of managing uh, uh, basically throughout the study, any safety issues for that affect patient safety. So SUSAR, Suspected, Unexpected, Serious Adverse Reactions. Those are serious adverse reactions that are suspected to be related to the drug and unexpected based on the literature that's available for that investigational product at the time. So if they get enough of those same SUSAR, they're supposed to update the informed consent to let future patients know, hey, we discovered another SAE that wasn't on the ICF before. Uh, so that's like, and so an that's example continuously. Of what to do. That's continuously. Continuous. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How were they selected? Like sponsors select them, or CRO, or so it's just like relationships between CROs or sponsors. Usually, it's CROs and these IRBs. Like, hey, I need, I need, I have a protocol. I needed approved ASAP. You know, we have 50 sites. We need you guys to get these sites activated ASAP. So it's just like networking. That's how they're selected. Now, there's nothing stopping. There's nothing preventing like a startup IRB from coming out. And I've thought about starting an IRB in the past. And the problem was I didn't want to do it on my own because that's a lot of work and kind of need like maybe a dozen different people to put one together. And so, yeah, I never did it, but there's nothing preventing an IRB from starting and they probably win a lot of market share. It's just really tough to do. And it's not something that most people think about, but Mm -hmm. to win business, you just got to network and know a lot of people and win those bids. Interesting. Uh, There was, there was another metric in
0: your book. I don't remember if it was around CROs, but it was around, you know, a certain number of maybe CROs owning a certain part of the business. I forget. Maybe it was CROs.
1: yeah. Yeah. CROs own some sites too. That's a little less, um, I don't think that to me is nece- necessarily a conflict of interest. okay.
0: Um, so um, then then moving on let's let's talk about informed consent. What does
1: it mean? Yeah, so informed it needs to be conducted it needs to be conducted throughout the study, right? Yep, most people think of it as just a form, which I understand the mistake because it is a form. That's the outcome. but true informed consent is continuously updating your patient retraining your patient, even on things you don't like, like electronic patient reported outcomes, retraining your patient, like, Hey, you're remember you're in a study. This is different than what you you're used to, but there are things you have to do. Like these diaries, you have to be compliant with your IP. You have to let us know anything that's going on with you. Even if you don't think it's related to the drug it might be. So if it's like nausea, if you had nausea one day or a headache, like let us know we were supposed to document everything. That's informed consent, letting patients know like constantly, hey, remember, you're in a study, like, we're not sure what this drug is actually going to do. And we're not going to get all the data unless you help us out. That's true informed consent. And um, most people just think of it as a form that needs to be signed. And when the IRB amends it, It needs to be signed again by the
0: patient. Um, What was interesting too in your book is you you describe situations where one may proceed without informed consent, and it was really interesting. And when when I dug into the regulation, there were you know, parts around extenuating circumstances. And, mm-hmm. and there was a whole section around the military and, and the president and secretary of defense, you know, department Man. of defense. And it was it was really interesting considerations I never thought about before. Um, have, have you in your experience seen proceeding without informed consent due to those types of things? Is it is it super, no.
1: super uncommon? super uncommon, like life-threatening situations, um, like, uh, surgery, you know, patients uncon, like traumatic brain injury, for example, patient just got in a motorcycle accident. How are they going to do informed consent? Right. But you have their family there that agree. Um, so situations like that, but yeah, it's not very
0: common outside of like, so,
1: um, uh,
0: you know, you, you, you also talk in your book about the IRB approving the trial specific consent form. Um, and, and you just talked about known and possible side effects. Uh, maybe, maybe you went over it just a sec, but I wanted to confirm. So in, in phase one and two, you, you sort of don't always know what the adverse events are, um, and potential side effects. And so what does that collection process look like? And what is the turnaround time? Is it is it something that Like, let's say you just let's say, um, you've only had um, SAE one, two, three, four, five, and SUSAR one and two. Um, but you discover AE six, a new one, SAE six. Um, do you uh, proactively reach out to patients and say, "Hey, we discovered this, you know, adverse event." Or is it during their next visit? What does that I guess communication um, look like?
1: So yeah, we'll like if it's our patient, we let them know. Like obviously, this you have you had a SAE. We're not sure if it's related. If we have data available, like from other SUSARS from other sites, so that's one of the IRBs' roles. Is when there's a SUSAR at any site participating in this study or for that drug like even in another study, but the same drug, they send you the Sustar reports. So you're as a site, you're aware of the latest happenings in Sustars for this IP. So if your patient, the idea is if your patient comes to you with the same thing, maybe you can catch it before it becomes a serious adverse event, right? Like your, your, your clinician can know, hey, this is like, I'm not liking this because maybe I know how this movie ends and it's starting to be the beginning of a possible SUSAR for you. So we're just going to stop you from from, uh, being in the study. And the PI can do that at their discretion. And good PIs do do that. Uh, So yes, now if it's a SUSAR from another site that the IRB wants to amend the informed consent, then you let your patients know they just discovered a new possible... Uh, SAE. So we're disclosing it to you and you have to re you know, resign this whole form. Um, and patients, I've never had a patient like afraid of, uh, uh, I've, I've never had a patient afraid once they're in the study and they have to sign something else. I've never had a patient like not want to do it. I've had patients not want to sign it initially from the beginning for a variety of reasons. Cause some of those ICF forms are really intimidating. Um, but, once they're in and they learn how the study works, they, they typically say, hey, this is not like that big of a deal. And so if you have amendments, they're, they're usually okay signing. There was,
0: there was one thing around clinical studies can't be considered treatment.
1: Yeah. that I, they're not,
0: I, I, Can you explain
1: that? I, I thought that was so confusing. It's just legal speak because you can't market it as treatment. So what happens okay. is if they didn't say that, then they can just say, hey, we got a new treatment for you. Understood, And it's not, it's not a treatment until the FDA approves it. Understood. Okay. Clear.
0: Um, so that, that seems pretty straightforward. Even if it is
1: like, we all know it is, but they technically can't say it. You haven't
0: confirmed that it is yet. Okay. So, um, I guess, can you, can you talk about HIPAA and, uh, the experimental subject bill of, this, all this stuff was so interesting to me, by the way, because there, (laughs) there was, there was a lot of stuff that I realized I didn't know and obviously still don't know, but, um, I guess at a, at a site level, what is, what is your, um, what, what do HIPAA practices look like? And then what are, what do sponsors have access to? What do CROs have access Mm -hmm. to? What do agencies have access to? And so on.
1: So, yeah, it all revolves around personal health information of the patients. So when a patient's in a study, they're a number, they're an initial, um, there's no social security number. Uh there's maybe uh their initials and the study number, the subject number that they are. So any PHI personal health information, uh, doesn't get to sponsors, um, uh, even down to things like their email addresses, which every sponsor has their own SOPs. So some are okay with having emails for the purposes of like let's say patient reported outcomes so they could communicate directly. Others say no, you you can't put their emails in there, but when it comes to like social security number or a name associated with their medical record uh, you're supposed to de-identify patients prior to sponsors reviewing the data. And if they're not de-identified, the information needs to be shared in such a way that it cannot be the, the integrity of their security cannot be compromised. Basically you can't email medical records to a monitor. You have to have like your own portal for that. Uh, that's in a nutshell, like what sites have to do to protect the PHIs for their patients. Understood.
0: So, um, I guess can we can we talk about the um, the 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 PHIs? What what does it look like for for a site? I mean, we we hear about clinical readout. Um, is the site doing the analysis? Is the CRO doing the analysis? What does that, what does that process look like?
1: So for sites, the, the only time we actually get medical, we need medical records is to determine eligibility of the patient. And so we need to get like documentation of their prior meds that they're taking, right? They're the, uh, their con meds. we also need to get some documentation of their medical history, both of the therapeutic condition or anything else they might have so that it could all be recorded in the database in the EDC so that if a patient already has diabetes when they're in their in your study, and it's a study for psoriasis, for example, that the diabetes doesn't come as an effect of the IP right? It's just, it's part of medical history. It's in its own compartment. Once the patient's in the study, you don't really need medical history for anything else. It's all study data at that point, unless there is a SAE or a change in their medication, their, their conmeds, So medications outside of the study, uh, then you need some kind of supporting documentation for the reason for the change. You know, did they have adverse event? Like, why are they now taking, ibuprofen like for what reason so you have to have a reason for that okay is that adverse event okay you have to document that is it a serious adverse event you have to document that and that's primarily what monitors do on a day-to-day basis um but that's what phi like and and medical records look like from a pragmatic standpoint from a site's perspective
0: and then in, in terms
1: of the study data study data too yeah like study data is uh just for the study. So patient comes in for visit three, we do their vitals, we do their ECG, we, we draw their blood, run the labs, we do different surveys, that's study data. That's not really part of that patient's medical history. It doesn't go into their medical history file. It's just part of study data. And then who, who does the
0: analysis to see, you know, is there, a, a, is you know, is there, is there
1: efficacy? And so um, biostats at the end of the study or at uh during database lock uh periodic
0: database locks there's there's stages where you
1: there's stages yeah Mm. these days because the studies cost so much so they usually they'll analyze data like as the study's going at set time points so maybe every quarter and typically it's because investors want to see how it's how things are going and um they're they're doing periodic database lock this is why you see these biotechs sometimes like shoot up in price lately they've been getting killed but like they have a good interim analysis of one of their studies now investors are happy stock goes up or vice versa you know database lock showed no efficacy sponsors stops the study happens to happen a lot during the great recession actually got
0: so you say that the The 1572 is the most important regulatory form a a regulatory document in clinical research. Um, Yeah. As far as I could tell, it's just a two page form that lists who's doing what and basically lists a
1: CRO study site and sponsor. Why is that so important? Because it's the PI's promise to the FDA. It's their contract with the FDA that they are responsible. Only they are responsible for the conduct of the study at their site. Uh,
0: I, I guess that doesn't—that still doesn't make a whole lot of sense why it's important. Can you
1: dive a little deeper? It's literally the only reason. Because should the site have misconduct or maybe just negligence, FDA is going to audit. PI can say, well, I don't know. I mean, the, the monitor never checked this. And my coordinator left, well, the FDA is going to hold that to them and say, well, you signed this 1572 form. So you're the one responsible for it. They basically can't hide from that. Okay.
0: So, so, so basically there's a, there's a, a a connection somewhere where the sponsor is responsible for the overall study. Mm -hmm. um, But the conduct that occurs at the site is the responsibility of the PI. Yeah. Um, And so the, the sponsor's role would be to select appropriate sites and whether that means, uh, you know. Um, through the periodic, whatever they're called site visits, I think you said they're done every six to eight weeks by CROs, um, you know, making sure that their sites are in line or, or what. Um, exactly. It still, it, it still feeds in there. And they're okay. not always
1: good. The CRAs are not always thorough. And then the PI can use that as an excuse of the FDA audit. Well, the CRA came here 10 times and never told me anything. FDA mm. can still tell them you're supposed to know the protocol. You signed this 1572. Got it. Do, um, as far as submission goes, is it
0: is it right that you only submit the protocol approval or do you submit the actual protocol
1: to FDA? I'm not sure. I'm not a regulatory affairs, but I, yeah, they're supposed to submit the approved protocol. I know that. I don't know if they submit the, you know, they, there's, there's a, a system called the trial master file system, yeah. which is auditable by the FDA. And that's where there's an audit trail of everything that's ever been uploaded. So I think the FDA, if they really want to, they can look at everything that's been submitted. Uh, but like formally what's submitted to the FDA I'm assuming it's just the clinical study report at the end of the study. And then the um, IND uh, when they're submitting for the investigational product approval to do a study. Got it. Um
0: Okay. So can you, can you just, uh, we're wrapping up here. We only have a few minutes left, but um, it's crazy. I know. Uh, And I still believe it or not have like 20 questions left. I wasn't (laughs) lying. I I, I swear it's like the the most questions I've had about uh, anything for a podcast, but, So, um, okay. So let's dive into this. So there's, there's two things I want to talk about that's left. I'm like, uh, you know, uh, it's like the chopping block, which, which are we not going to talk about? Okay. So there's two (laughs) things I want to talk about. One is um, people always talk about how long it takes to do clinical trials. You talk about um, accrual and completion rates. I think you called it, you know, how many, how many patients stick along with it? You said 50% or so is, is, is like more or less, amazing. yeah. Um, and so what, what what takes so long? Is it is it finding the,
1: the patients? Yeah, it's needle in the haystack. I mean, that is that, it as simple it as long. that. That's like the biggest reason. So that's the first thing is like let's pre-screen who at least on paper qualifies. We haven't even talked to these people yet. We're just like we're gonna see from the database like who we think qualify. Now we have to call them. Most people they're not interested, you know, or, or they can't do it or they're going out of town. So by the time they come back, we're not enrolling anymore. So that's why recruitment's tough and retention is tough for a variety of reasons. Basically patient can just say, I'm not interested. I don't like this anymore. Too many diaries is not what I signed up for. Sponsor can say, Hey, this patient's probably should be withdrawn for whatever reason, labs come back bad or PI says, Hey, I'm not comfortable with my patient being in the study based on these efficacy assessments or these safety assessments that I'm seeing. I don't like the trend that it's going. So I'm going to take them off. So there's a variety of reasons why patients, um, don't make it till the end of the study.
0: But it's not, it's not like, uh, it takes long to generate the data or analyze the data or write the protocol. Or, I mean, is it as simple as getting the patient's
1: I mean, all those things take a long, like generating the data, the sites have to complete the EDC system. Somebody has to query it. Somebody has to monitor it. Then it has to be locked. Final queries. Once the database is locked, interim data analysis, like that data is considered final, even though the study is still ongoing. Um, clinical study re- reports. So yeah, it's all like, it's all time consuming and expensive. Oh, I think you... it's like a million dollars a day for a clinical trial.
0: Yeah I w- I also wanted to ask you about the uh um, hopefully we can get you on mm-hmm. again but I wanted to maybe maybe we'll do a day in the life of a CRA and CRC but I wanted <laughs> to ask you about the data verification part um cuz I was interested in that and then the the step after which which you said is the the harder part I forget what it's called SDV mm-hmm. SDR I think it was right SDR stuff yeah, yeah yeah um so okay then the last thing last thing before we close decentralized clinical trials a buzzword if you ever heard one right Um, You talk about how some some big companies have have tried to move into that, um, you know, as early as 2011, I think your book said, Um, what is what is the climate around that? Uh, And I I heard you in your podcast also talk about how originally they thought it would be bad for the study sites, but it may Mm -hmm. be more difficult for CROs. Is that right?
1: Yeah, initially it was like sites were like, well, this is like, they're just going to cut us out of the picture. And and by the way, the sponsors and CROs would probably love that because they can't control the sites. But at the end of the day, it's where the rubber meets the road. The patients know the clinicians. Uh, So now the idea of DCT is let's give the patients the flexibility. Do they want, they, they may not want to come in or need to come into the site every visit. Maybe they can do a lot of this stuff from home. So on paper it seems like a great idea the problem is who's going to who's going to make sure the patients are doing like these are daily i have to get back to the office and call t- two patients because they they miss their diaries over the week sponsors and cros can't have this communication with the patient they're not allowed so who's going to do that they're well not it's going to because be this, of a variety of like i yeah like there's there's different legal issues there. I've had the Arshan who's like my go-to attorney for this. And yeah, he said, it's not so easy to have the sponsors do this. So decentralization is great in theory, but the way it plays out is that these patients still have to do what you tell them. And yeah. a lot of times technology just makes things harder for them. That's the problem. And so
0: where, I guess what I'm hearing from you is you see it as being some sort of hybrid model where you know, they, they try to, some of the, the interim touch points that they would typically have the patient come into the office is done remotely either by the study site or or probably by the study site potentially, but TBD. Okay. So I guess the last two questions, what's, what's a book besides your own that spoke to you? Whoa. You recommend. Whoa, whoa, whoa.
1: Gary Vaynerchuk crush it. The first one, that's what got me started doing the YouTube stuff, which, Changed my career, tra- changed the trajectory of my career without the YouTube. I mean, I would just be a side owner. Nothing wrong with that. I would just be a regular site owner you've never heard of. Yeah, really um, cool. And, and where you know, can people reach you? They know where, anywhere, <laughs> anywhere. I might literally TikTok anywhere they want. Just Dance Pharah, the wherever you're comfortable with it. LinkedIn, TikTok, Instagram, maybe just not Facebook. I'm on there, but I don't check messages on Facebook that often.
0: Yeah, very good. Well, uh, thanks for coming on. I hope to have you again, Dan.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to that episode of the Combinate Podcast. If you'd like to reach out to me for any feedback or to suggest a guest, feel free to use the contact form at letscombinate.com. If you'd like to support the show, please give it five stars and a review on whatever platform you're listening on. It really helps out. And that's all for this episode. We'll see you next time.